The text this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Daniel, chapter 9. I will begin reading at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years which, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and terrible God, who keepest covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the peoples of the land. To thee, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us confusion of face, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those that are near and those that are far away, in all the lands to which thou hast driven them, because of the treachery which they have committed against thee. To us, O Lord, belongs confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, because we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, refusing to obey thy voice. And the curse and oath which are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done the like of what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and giving heed to thy truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who didst bring thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast made thee a name, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteous acts, let thy anger and thy wrath turn away from the city, Jerusalem, thy holy hill, because for our sins... And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a byword among all who are round about us. Now therefore, O our God, 
Hearken to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications, and for thy own sake, O Lord, cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thy eyes and behold our desolations and the way which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of thy great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and act. Delay not for thy own sake, O my God, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Father, that's our prayer for the Christian movement today. The new Jerusalem, the new Israel. And I ask that you'd come and teach us to pray like this from our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I titled this message, How to Pray for a Desolate Church, is because I think the ruin of Jerusalem and the captivity of Israel that Daniel's praying for here is a picture of the Christian movement today in many parts of the world, especially in the West. I know that there's pockets of life and purity and depth and faithfulness and obedience and power and zeal around the world. I know that God will never give up on his people and that he will see his purposes accomplished, even if he must do it by a remnant. But I do know that around the world, the church lies desolate in disobedience and disunity and dishonor to Christ in many, many places. And that when Daniel is praying here for the desolation of Jerusalem and the desolation of the people of God in that day, it sounds a lot to me like the church. And so what I want to do is give you three comparisons between the people he was praying for and the church that I see in America today, and not just America, and then ask him, how shall we pray for a desolate church? Number one, the people are captive to godless forces. Verses 11 and 13, Daniel says that this calamity has come upon the Babylonian captivity, upon them as a, as a captivity, according to the law of Moses. If you go back to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, here's what you read. For example, in Deuteronomy 28:36, The people who forsake God, the Lord will bring you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods. Now, hundreds of years later, that happened in Babylon. In 1520, Martin Luther wrote a little, a little treatise called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And what he meant was that the church of the 1500s had been taken captive by mental forces that were outside God and outside Christ and that the church was held captive by assumptions and by values which were not God's and not in his word, just like Israel was captive to godless forces. And the situation in the church today is very much like that. Millions and millions of churchgoers under the banner of Christianity think exactly the way the world thinks. 
They get all of their assumptions and all of their values from the media and from the television and from newspapers and from magazines and from secular education. And the Bible is tacked on three to five minutes a day, hardly any transforming power in it. They are Babylonian captives in a secular world. They have the same love affair that the world does with ease and with self and with prosperity. Many groups in the church are captive to the spirit of Babylon, in spite of the fact that the Lord said we're supposed to be aliens, exiles in the world. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed out of it. That's number one. They were captive to forces outside of God. And I see the church very much like that. Number two, the people were guilty and ashamed. Verse 5 is a, a good summary verse of, what, 14 verses of confession here? We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from thy commandments. There was real guilt and therefore real shame. It's mentioned, the shame is mentioned in verses 7 and 8. The RSV uses this phrase, confusion of face. To us belongs confusion of face. Literally, it means to us belongs shame of face. That is, we look upon our guilt and it is so real, our face turns red and we don't want to be seen and we turn away and don't want anybody to know how bad we are. Look around the church today, there's a very uneasy conscience in the church today. Because we know, in our heads, deep down here, we know that we're supposed to be a countercultural people with values and behaviors of love and justice and risk-taking service. Showing that we're citizens of heaven, not citizens of the earth. And we look in the mirror and we see the world. And our consciences know that we're guilty and we're ashamed. And so we slink through the world and hardly anybody knows that we are Christians. Because we are so inauthentic. If we opened our mouths, we know it would not be real. That's number two. Real guilt and real shame. Confusion of face across the church. And number three, they were a byword among the nations. Verse 16, second half of the verse. Jerusalem and thy people have become a byword. That is, an object of scorn, a, a reproach. Among the nations, that is, the way they have behaved in their godlessness, like the nations, the loss, the devastation of the people, their weakness, their lack of distinction, their lack of devotion, their lack of prayerlessness, their lack of worship, their lack of radical, self-sacrificing, justice-accomplishing love has resulted in their devastation and the world is laughing at their God. And Israel is a byword. Among the nations, just like today, Christianity carries very little clout in anybody's conscience in America. It's a byword for many. The church is a byword for many. 
No radical difference in this people. They look like everybody else. They, they act like everybody else. They spend their time doing what everybody else is doing. Except maybe there's a little component of spirituality that completes the well-rounded, up-to-date, New Age-ish American. When Daniel prays for a desolate people, I hear him praying for the American church. And I want to know how to pray for the church. And, and if, if you say, well, Bethlehem is doing okay, I really don't want to assess Bethlehem this morning, except to say this. If we say, Bethlehem is doing okay, this sermon doesn't belong to us, that's a sign that we're not doing okay. Because a church that doesn't care about the church, capital C, and all the devastated congregations in this city and across the nation is no church worthy of the name. If you don't pray for the church, for the churches down the street, for liberal Protestantism, for Catholicism, for marginal groups, for evangelicalism that have nobody there on Sunday morning, for people that are bankrupt morally and spiritually, if you don't care for the wider movement of Jesus and the reputation of God... Cameroon, every church I was in was as dead as this church. The church in America, I mean. In other words, it had gotten old over a hundred years. It was a lot of form. Let's not have this pristine notion that, oh, on the third world front, everything's red hot, especially where there's Pentecostalism. There's nothing deader than a dead Pentecostal church. How did he pray? Number one, let's pray by going to the beginning where this prayer began. It began with the books. Look at verse two. In the first year of Darius reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books and his heart broke and hope sprang up and he began to pray with his nose in the books. And the book was Jeremiah. And Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. George Mueller, remember him? The orphanage George Mueller, 100 years ago in England. George Mueller said that for 10 years of his Christian life, he tried to get up in the morning and pray without the Bible. And for 10 years, he failed. His mind wandered and wandered, and he never prayed worth a toot. And then he discovered the Bible for prayer. And he said from then on, for 40 years, he did not pray without the Bible. He started with the Bible and he turned the Bible into prayer. Otherwise, his mind went everywhere and he couldn't pray. Sound familiar? Sure does to me in my life. I cannot pray longer than about three minutes without the Bible. My mind is so vulnerable to wind shades and sirens and horn tootins and stomach growls and dust on my prayer table and who knows what else that I can't even hold a thought in my mind longer than a minute without the Bible. And that's why the Bible exists. Daniel's prayer began in the books. And it stayed in the books. Did, those of you who know the Bible, when David was reading this, did you hear the Bible? Every other sentence was Bible, Bible, Bible. It's just saturated with Bible. He quotes he quotes uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus, Psalms, Jeremiah. The whole thing is woven scripture. 
allusions to Scripture, it brims with a biblical view of God because it brims with Bible. My experience in prayer meetings, my experience in my own life, is that the people with the most dynamic, the most fervent, the most effective prayers are the people who are brimming with Bible. And people who aren't brimming with Bible generally are not brimming with prayer. You try to separate this whole issue of Bible into your brain and into your heart, you'll be a prayerless person. You can't pray without the Bible. If you try and you succeed, you know what happens? Your prayers will be exactly as worldly as the church you're trying to save from worldliness. The only way to get prayers out of worldliness is to get Bible into the prayers. It's the only way. The only thing that's not worldly in this world is the Bible. That's the only source of truth that we won't fit into worldliness. So if your prayer, like mine, is for the worldliness of the church, you've got to get the worldliness out of your prayers. And the only way is to get the Bible into your prayers. So do like Daniel. Get your nose in the book and let your prayers begin like his. Verse 2, in the books. One way, last week we put the little uh, through, a, through the Bible in a year in the worship folder. I hope many of you saved it. That's not the only way to do it. You don't have to do it that way. Here's another way. When you walk out this morning, we've got 600 of this little magazine called Table Talk from R.C. Sproul's ministry down in Florida. They're all free. They're old. The point is to check it out and see if this might be a way. Then you can subscribe to it. It costs money, but I thought, let's ask them for 600 free ones. Give it as another option to our people. R.C. Sproul's a good theologian. I think what you'll find in this book, week in and week out, is worth your meditation. So check them out. Grab them as you go out those doors. Read through the old one. And then, if it looks like it might be a way to do it, order them from R.C. Sproul. But do what you have to do to get your nose in the book and the book in your prayers and your prayers up to heaven for the sake of a desolate church. That's number one. Number two, you pray for a desolate church by confessing sin. Twelve of these verses here in this prayer are confession, verses four to fifteen. Confession means acknowledging the truth about God and about me in my sin. It means recognizing sin as sin. It's not popular today. In fact, the main preoccupation with sin today is to find words that make it sound not like sin. That's the main preoccupation with sin. Find other words that make it not sound so bad and discouraging, defeating, and hopeless. Here are the words that Daniel uses. Wickedness, rebellion, wrong, treachery, shameful, and disobedience. Those are not happy words. They're ugly words. They make me feel bad. Bad, bad, bad. I don't like sin. I hate sin. And that's a good sign. Trying to water it down and make it sound like something else, weakness or whatever, is not a good sign. It's ugly. It's a deep, bad thing. It means recognizing God for who He is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Angels who never sin shut their face off, cover their feet that never tread on any evil path. He is holy. What will we do before such a God? It means feeling broken and remorseful. And oh, we need to get something straight here. Biblical repentance is not feeling broken for the misery that sin has brought into your life. Every worldly person feels horrible for the misery that sin has brought into their life. Everybody. If your life is miserable because of sin, you feel bad. That's not repentance. 
I'm dealing with a family right now that are so destroyed because of sin in their life, they can hardly move, and there's no repentance. They're crying all day long. That's all they do is cry over the misery of their lives, and there's no repentance. Do you understand? Repentance is a step beneath weeping over the misery of sin in your life, which every unbeliever does. Repentance is saying there's something far worse than the wreckage I've made in my life. It's the wreckage of the glory of God that I've made through my sin. My deepest brokenness is that I have shamed my maker. And until that grieves you, there's no repentance and no forgiveness. Oh, how much delusion there is in the church today and how much is being cultivated by the thought that if we can just cry in a pastor's office, if we can just feel rotten about the misery of our lives, that's repentance. And we wonder why we go out the next day and do it again. We've never been broken by the glory of the Lord. We've never shuddered before the holiness of God and been ripped to shreds beneath the misery. It's God-centered. Number three. So we pray for a desolate church in the book, confessing our sins for God's sake, and... Thirdly, remembering past mercies in order to gain hope. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who didst bring thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. Isn't that great? That's hundreds of years ago and he's still clinging to it. You did it, Lord, remember? You did it. They weren't worthy of you in Egypt. Just like we're not worthy of you now. Listen to this Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider thy wonderful works. They did not remember the abundance of thy steadfast love, but rebelled at the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. That's what Daniel was remembering. God, for your namesake, you saved those people at the Red Sea. You might do it again. The third way to pray is by remembering past mercies. Oh, I wish everybody was a church historian. <laughs> I wish you all knew church history. You would be so encouraged. Everybody, I should have brought one along and hold up the, the little quarterly magazine called Christian History. I'll put it in the star maybe. Everybody should subscribe to Christian History. Get it once a quarter and read stories about history because what God has done back then is a great source of life because the downward spiral of the church is never a straight line any more than the upward spiral is a straight line. It's always this action. And therefore, if you can look back, you will find that there have been dark days from which God rescued. I was reading this week... 
the story of 18th century England before John Wesley and George Whitfield came on the scene and God awakened the churches. And the situation in England was awful. Listen to this. Only five or six members of parliament even went to church. The plague, smallpox, countless diseases we call minor today had no cures. Clothing was expensive, so many of the city's poor wore rags infested with lice just like their beds. The penalties for crime seemed barbaric, hanging for petty thievery. Young boys and sometimes girls were bound over to a master for seven years for training. They worked six days a week, dawn to dusk, often uh, beyond that. If you were unlucky and starving, you might fall foul of the law and be packed off to the stench of Newgate Prison. From there, you might have the chance to go to the New World in a boat loaded with prisoners of all sorts. Drunkenness was rampant and gin was fed to babies, too, to keep them quiet with blindness and often death as a result. Did you think crack babies were new? They're not new. Nothing is new. The people's love of tormenting animals and bull baitings was equaled only by their delight in a public execution. All of that and more, a dead church, totally dead in the first half of the 18th century. And then came God. The downward spiral of corruption. Did you read the papers this week? It's all about the murders all over the country. The spiraling rate of violence in America today and corruption. Do you read that? And just say, it's all over. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm checking out or checking into my closet. I'm done with this world. If that's the way you're thinking, you don't know history. History is full of hope. It's replete with hope in the grace of God. Along came George Whitfield and along came John Wesley. And you know, God really is a remarkably humorous God at times because in choosing this one guy who was overweight, George Whitfield, and this one guy who was 5 feet 3 inches, 128 pounds, and he turned the nation upside down with a glutton and a tiny man. As if to say, you think this country is unchangeable? You think this culture is untransformable? You think sin cannot be changed by my power? I will not only do it, I will do it with the likes of a George Whitfield and a tiny little John Wesley. Watch me. And he did it. And he could, if we learned how to pray like Daniel, do it again. Know your history. Finally, we should pray with a view to God's seal for his glory. Look at verse 18 and 19, the climax of the prayer. We do not present our supplications before thee on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of thy great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and act. Delay not for thy own sake, O God, because the city... Thy people are called by thy name. Do you get it? We're called by your name. Christ is written over this church and over the whole Christian movement. Christian, Christ, Christian. Lord, don't you love your son? Don't you love the glory of the son? Don't you have a zeal and a majestic, earnest power for the glory of your name? Stand forth then. To you, O Lord, and not to us. To you be glory. For your namesake, save. For your namesake, deliver. For your namesake, purify. For your namesake, clean up our act. For your namesake, power us. Let's learn to pray for the desolate church with a view to the glory of the 
would you take your worship folder and turn with me to the second page. It's called a service of confession. We're just going to take Daniel now and begin to do some prayer work and worship work here. And I'd like to begin with this responsive reading. I'll read the light, you read the dark. And we'll just take Daniel's words now and bring them into our service and do business for our church and for our movement today. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Now, our God, hear the prayers of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. We're going to close the service by singing these songs, and here's what we're going to do by way of prayer. In each of the corners of this sanctuary, one back there, and one back there, and one over here, and one over here, there'll be a prayer team, two people, and I think... Uh, I'm going to ask David to join me. Just stand here at the front. And we're going to sing these five songs. And while we're singing, you may stay, pray, sing. But if, if you're burdened and you want someone to pray for you and with you about what you've heard, about a longing, yearning in your life, go to a corner here and we'll pray while we're singing and then even linger after for a few minutes as we close. So let's bow and pray and sing.